Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this week I am delighted to welcome Hugh Ryan to the show. Hugh is a historian, author, and curator in New York City. In 2010, he founded the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, leading workshops on queer history and AIDS activism all over the country. His first book was The Unforgettable, When Brooklyn Was Queer, and his latest book picks up in Manhattan with The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Otherwise known as The House of D, the prison stood in the heart of New York City's Greenwich Village from 1929 until it was demolished in 1974, imprisoning countless women and trans men for the crime of not being feminine enough. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> that sounds crazy, right? It sounds crazy. What, were women actually imprisoned for smoking and wearing pants? Well, among other things, but yeah, yes, they were. Now, this episode is a little more recent than a lot of the history we cover on this show, but it's not very well known, and this stuff is important. This episode covers a lot of ground, from how the gay experience went from one of relative invisibility in the 19th century to suffering the rise of homophobia in the 20th. We're going to talk about how the earliest American prisons for violent offenders were transformed into institutions to keep women in their place, and how the American plan imprisoned countless women across the country for their perceived potential to spread sexually transmitted infections that they didn't always have. It's a story of more than just a prison. This book covers issues of race, sex, and class in America, who the system is built for and who it's built to exclude. These are some of the biggest issues facing us today and also some of the most insidious. Many of the inmates at the Women's House of Detention were all but forgotten until now. With Hugh's new book, as well as the work of the activists still fighting to preserve its memory, the House of D is finally getting the attention it deserves. I will warn you, however, in this episode, we do talk about issues like sexual assault, non-consensual medical testing, and forced sterilization. So if you need to set this one out, that's okay. Having said that, I think that this is one of the most interesting conversations that I've ever had. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Hugh Ryan. So today on the podcast, we have Hugh Ryan, who is the author of the brand new The Women's House of Detention. I'm uh, showing the book for our viewers on Patreon. Now, this book was so, so good, and we are really excited to have Dr. Ryan here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. It's a real honor to be here. Right. Well, uh, this book was, I mean, absolutely mind-blowing. You cover so much ground, and I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about it. 
So first things first, okay? So location is really central to the story of the women's hostage detention. How did it come to be in Greenwich Village and how did it influence the landscape? It's funny. It came to be in Greenwich Village, honestly, through a lot of different elements kind of wending together. But one of the things I learned in doing this research is that prisons have been an integral part of Greenwich Village since the 1790s. For almost as long as there has been a United States, there have been prisons in Greenwich Village. The House of D, the Women's House of Detention, was simply the last of them. It was built starting in 1929 and it opened in 1931. And the reason that it ends up there, so we've got this long prison history in the village, right? And that's well established before we even get to the beginning of the 1900s. But at the same time, as we're getting into the 1900s, as Greenwich Village is be starting to become maybe something a little bit like the neighborhood we know today, there's this institution that's founded in New York called the Women's Court. And the Women's Court is located at Greenwich Village because all of these other prisons and courthouses have been there. So it's just kind of a natural evolution. We'll put this there. And what it was, was a court for women arrested at night on charges of prostitution, disorderly conduct, public intoxication, uh, these kind of crimes against the public order, you know, not uh, crimes against persons like assault or crimes against property like robbery or arson. These are crimes that are what we might say call victimless, right? They're really just moments in which the carceral system can swoop in and arrest women and incarcerate them into virtue. Because there was this idea that women only had two acceptable jobs in the world. You could either be a wife or you could be a maid, and you had to be feminine to be one or the other. So anyone who's not properly feminine gets arrested for it and put through this women's court. And the reason it works at night is because up until this point, there were no night courts in New York City. The first night court opens in 1907. It's the precursor to the women's court is in the exact same spot in Greenwich Village where the house of detention will eventually be, right? All of this is happening on the same location. And the reason New York City opens up this night court is because the police are so corrupt. The police are running this scam, right? The idea is this, you arrest a poor woman because she's out at night. It's very easy. You can arrest any woman you want. No charges, no evidence, no nothing. Arrest them, there's no court open at night. So you bring them back to the police station. Now, once they're in the police jail, the only people who can talk to them are the people the police let in. So, if a woman wants to get out of that jail, she needs to pay a fee, her bail fee. In order to pay that fee, she probably didn't have that money on her, right? So the police let in a bail bondsman. This bail bondsman has already paid the police for access to arrested women, right? That's where the bribery comes in. The bail bondsman bribes the police. The police let them in to see this woman who's been arrested, again, for no reason, but on a prostitution charge. This woman then pays the bail bondsman a non-refundable fee. Let's say she's got to pay a $100 bond. She pays the bondsman five bucks. The bondsman puts up the money for her to leave the station with the idea that when she goes to trial, the bondsman will get that money back. He's done his job, ensured that she went to trial. She is now on the street. And then the bondsman turns around and goes to the police officer and says, okay, drop the charges. Charges are dropped. The bondsman gets his money back instantly because he no longer needs to make sure that the woman goes to the courthouse for the day of her trial. The woman is free and on the streets and can be picked up again tomorrow and you can run the same scam over and over again. So the bondsman gets his fee and the police officer gets his bribe. 
in order to stop this, they created night courts with the idea that this would prevent police from taking these bribes. Spectacular failure. It does nothing to fix the situation whatsoever. But what it does do is create in Greenwich Village the central location to which all women arrested on prostitution charges will be taken for decades. And over and over again, because being arrested as a prostitute is just simply a sign that you are the improper kind of woman who is not feminine enough to be a wife or a maid, that's what means you're a prostitute. Those people being concatenated in the village for decades after the prison opens are largely queer women, trans men, non-binary people. So the village becomes a center for queer people because this women's court was opened there. And the court, when it was created, had a requirement that a house of detention be built near it so that women on trial wouldn't have to travel very far from where they were being detained to where they were being in the court. So that's a really long answer to your question. But basically it comes down to this. Prisons have always been part of Greenwich Village. They're constitutional to Greenwich Village. Police corruption required the creation of a women's court that focused on women arrested for prostitution. And the nature of the village meant that that court ended up in the village and the house of detention came along with it and helped to make the village the queer neighborhood we know it as today. That's absolutely incredible. Um, and it is quite a big question. I'm afraid I've got another big one for you. <laughs> so the women's house of detention was opened from 1929 to 1972, torn down in 1974. Um, now this was spanning a period that you called the single most homophobic period in American history. So what was life really like for people on the LGBTQ spectrum in New York at this time? I mean, it was all over the place, but definitely one of the real um, hallmarks of the 20th century. If you look at interviews and writings by queer people pre-World War II, it's not like the situation is, is great by any means, you know, but there isn't this kind of verbal affirmative homophobia, this uh, people being beaten in the streets, this hard line between homosexual and heterosexual behavior. That's really something that comes about post-World War II, because we get this idea, pre-World War II, we have lots of ideas about what it means to be a queer person. In the 19th century, the big idea in America was an invert model. The invert was kind of like a, a, an idea that combined and collapsed our ideas of what it meant to be gay, with what it meant to be trans, with what it meant to be intersex. An invert was someone who was gendered improperly, and that was probably because their body was improper too. It was too masculine or too feminine. So your personality is very much based in your body in the 19th century. And this is how queerness was understood. We also have these ideas that are post-Freudian ideas in the early 20th century, which say sexuality is a separate thing from gender or sex, right? And it's in your mind. An invert was visible. You could see from someone walking down the street, if they were an invert, their body was wrong, their gender was wrong, everything they did was wrong. It was the Victorian era. So men were expected to spend all their time with men, women with women, people who were gendered wrong, they jump out at you. But homosexuals, people we would consider homosexuals, gender normative people who just desired the same sex, they're largely invisible in the 19th century because quote unquote straight people are expected to spend all their time with other you know, men with men, women with women and say how much they love them and devote their time to them. All these things that homosexuals were doing too, but it didn't mean all that much because straight people were doing it. So we've got all these ideas swirling around at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. When Freud comes along and starts to push this idea that sexuality is not in the body, is not visible, can be hidden, and is something that develops over time. So you yourself might not even know right now 
if 10 years from now you are going to be a homosexual. You might not know if your best friend or your mother is a homosexual. Well, then the only way to prove you're not a homosexual is to constantly be reinforcing your heterosexuality, to be saying it out loud, to be making fun of gay people, to be avoiding the things gay people do, whether that's watch drag or go to that specific bar down in Greenwich Village or dress in clothing of the opposite sex. For all of these reasons, homophobia starts to grow when Freud moves sexuality into the mind. And with World War II, that idea that sexuality is in the mind and it's invisible and it's something you have to watch out for gets spread throughout the country. World War II acts as this venue when the army and the navy and all the armed forces tell every man as they're being recruited, we're going to test to see whether you're a homosexual. And if you are, you will be drummed out and you have to watch out for homosexuals in the service. And at the same time, that's happening to the women who are working now in the factories where the men are gone. That story that gets told, Alan Barabay does a great job of covering this and coming out under fire. That same story gets told by the court system to women in the decades earlier, right? 1930s and 1940s. By the time World War II is over, that old invert model where you knew what a queer person was and they weren't threatening, you might not like them, but you weren't going to become one, your mother wasn't one, your best friend wasn't one, you didn't need to watch out and guard your behaviors so that people wouldn't think you were one, that model is dead. And it's killed by the court system and by the government during World War II. And it creates this tremendous amount of homophobia, which then goes hand in hand with this kind of like post-war return to the suburbs, the you know nuclear family, the white family, the white suburb, the straight suburb. And homophobia grows and grows and grows and grows. And that's why I'd say 1950s are really the most homophobic time in American history. It's post-World War II, pre-Stonewall. Wow. Now you mentioned that they were testing people for homosexuality. How would you test for something like that? In a lot of different ways. The selective service boards, the same people who would test your reflexes and make sure you weren't flat-footed and all of this, they actually worked with people who were studying homosexuals uh, and some gay people themselves. In New York, they worked with an organization called the Committee for the Study of Sex Variants, who were supposedly there to help them ferret out the homosexuals. This might mean looking at their behaviors. It also might mean looking at their body because they're still not exactly 100% sure what makes a gay person. They're kind of trying to figure that out, but they have experts who they rely on. Uh, and those experts, the people at the Committee for the Study of Sex Variants, actually very explicitly say in a lot of the research I've looked at that sometimes gay people wanted to serve and they let them through. And sometimes straight people didn't want to serve, so they said they were gay. It was not a scientific system. But the existence of a system is what mattered because being put through those tests, whether it was measuring the size of your cranium or your index finger or the plasticity of your vagina, all things that were done to figure out if people were homosexuals or asking you questions about your dating life or just listening to your voice and how you use your wrist when you talk, all of these signs, they didn't matter all that much. But the fact there are a series of signs we can tell who a homosexual is, and they are so dangerous, they must be drummed out of the service. That's the thing that gets repeated to everyone. That's incredible. I think I missed that scene in Captain America. 
<laughs> no, but it could be right there, right? I think that the story of Captain America is a great one for looking at queer history. And some of my most devoted fans for my first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, are Stucky fan fiction writers who ship um, Bucky and um, Captain America. So I always say I am just waiting for the queer retelling of Captain America to hit the big screen. Marvel, call me. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to it. There's clearly some deep affection there. I can I can see it for sure. My goodness. All right. So one of the first people that you talk about is Mabel Hampton, and she had an extraordinary life even before she was detained. What can you tell us about Mabel? Mabel Hampton was a Black lesbian dancer and domestic worker who moved to New York uh, from the South when she was about eight years old. And she originally moved to Greenwich Village, uh, where she was abused by her extended relatives. And at the age of like nine, she ran away from home and she got on the subway, which she'd never seen before and didn't know what it was, and ended up living in New Jersey with a family who took her in because uh, she wouldn't say anything about where she was from. And they largely raised her until around 1920, when she started working as a domestic live-in servant around New York City and as a dancer at Coney Island. Coney Island, the most sexually non-normative, queer, exciting space in all of New York City history. Uh, and that's where she first learned the word lesbian. She was dancing one day and a woman kept watching her and she couldn't look away from this woman. She had already had sex with other women and had relationships, but this idea of lesbianism as a term and as a person you are, not just a thing you do, was new to her. And this woman explained it to her and then said, I'm a lesbian, but I'm also married and I have to leave before I ruin your life. And M Mabel Hampton said to her, you're not going to ruin my life. If this is what this is, I'm already in it. You're just helping me to understand it. And from that moment on, Mabel Hampton becomes a pillar in the queer communities that are emerging in New York City. She is active in the Harlem Renaissance and the Black queer community that's happening, you know, above 125th Street. But she's also active in the white queer community and the burgeoning world of queer bars and coffee shops that are opening up down in Greenwich Village and over in Jersey where she's living, right? So she connects all of these institutions. She is this incredible organizer, activist, dancer, singer. And as she gets older, she gets involved with the Nestle family, uh, Joan Nestle being the lesbian historian who becomes a co-founder of the Lesbian History Archives, and they become very close. And she helps to influence the creation of the Lesbian History Archives. She's a founding member, and thanks again to Joan and Deb, the two founders of Lesbian History Archives, we have a giant and incredibly robust oral history of Mabel Hampton's life that is documented with hours upon hours upon hours of publicly accessible tapes that you can go listen to right now. And it creates this amazingly robust history of queer women's life in New York City in the early and mid 20th century. That's amazing. Now, Mabel was first arrested when she was out on a date with her girlfriend, Viola, and they were arrested for suspected prostitution, because at the time, if you were out without a man, you could be suspected of being a sex worker. Yeah. Was that common? Would women frequently be arrested for this reason? All the time. Uh, being alone on the street, wearing pants, having short hair, smoking, accepting a date with a man. So Mabel's story goes like this. July 3rd, she's out at a cabaret. Uh, she's working as a live-in domestic in Harlem for a white family. The family's away at Europe, uh, in Europe, and she's taking care of the house. She goes out one night. She meets this guy, uh, Abraham Schlucker. Abraham Schlucker says to her, I've got a friend. Why don't we go out for a Coke tomorrow night? You bring your friend. I'll bring my friend, and we'll go I'll get a drink and celebrate July 4th. So Mabel gives him the address. 
house of the place that she's taking care of. And she calls her friend Viola and, and they're waiting there. And as soon as they open the door, the police just barge right in and arrest both of them. Because what black woman would accept a date with a white man except for a prostitute, right? That's all that's required to prove that she is a prostitute. And because of these same changes in the law that I was talking about that created the women's court, prostitution in these night courts and women's courts is a misdemeanor. There are no lawyers required. There is no jury required. And there is no evidence required because according to New York state law, Prostitution isn't about the exchange of sex for money. It is defined as the common lewdness of woman. Being a poor woman is enough evidence that you will end up a sex worker, that you can be arrested and convicted for it, which is exactly what happens to Mabel Hampton. She ends up with a three-year sentence for letting a man invite her out for a Coke. That is unbelievable. And you mentioned as well, people or uh, women and transmasculine people could be arrested for wearing pants. Yes. Uh, in fact, one of the cases that led me to the House of Detention was this person, Big Cliff Trondle. Uh, he was, in our terms, he was a, a trans guy. He's one of the earliest folks I can find uh, that really has a very modern sense of being a, a trans masculine person. Uh, so I feel very comfortable using male pronouns for him. But I came across him when I was doing my research on when Brooklyn was queer, because in 1913, he was sitting in a bar in Brooklyn, drinking coffee, and smoking while wearing pants. And he was arrested for it. And what's interesting is there's a law in the books about uh, wearing the wrong clothing, but the law is really complicated in New York at this time. You are only punished for wearing a costume, as they call it, if you're wearing it to commit another crime. So as a disguise to hide your identity while you rob a bank, basically, is the idea. The judge for whom this case is brought accurately says, this isn't a crime. He, he doesn't use male pronouns for Big Cliff. He uses female pronouns, but he basically says, this guy committed no crime. He can dress however he want. Let him go. They let him go. And the social worker assigned to his case through the probation office immediately has him rearrested. This time they make up a new charge associating with idle and vicious persons. This is another one of those charges that really only gets used against women, right? Because it's about a moral crime, not an actual crime. The reason, though, for this rearrest has nothing to do with the people that he's associating with. They bring him in front of a new magistrate because the new arrest happening in a new location gets a new judge. And this judge is much more conservative. And when this judge puts him away for three years, again, for wearing pants, he says specifically, even though that's no longer the charge in front of him, even though it has nothing to do with his clothing, that he is sending Big Cliff to jail because he is, quote, a moral pervert because no woman would want to dress like a man unless she is morally corrupt, right? So even though that's not the charge, and even though the charge is not illegal, it's what sends Big Cliff first to different prisons and eventually to the House of D. He becomes um, a sex worker and a drug user through the prison system and is in and out of the House of Detention for the rest of his life. Wow. And whether people were sex workers or not, um, people could also be incarcerated based on their perceived potential to spread sexually transmissible infections. You've talked a little bit about the American plan and not many people have heard of that. Can you explain what that is? The American plan is one of the biggest travesties of justice that our government has ever instituted, I think. Uh, the American plan kicks off during World War I. It, it has some a longer tale that comes earlier, but basically the idea was this. In World War I, we needed to have a ready service of men to go to war. 
men who had been taken away from their homes and families of origins who were therefore seen as having only one proper sexual outlet, sex workers. But sex workers, these poor women, were seen as invitations to venereal disease. And so to protect men, what they decided they needed to do was arrest and incarcerate any woman or girl who was suspected of having a venereal disease. In 1919, the American government sends out a letter to every attorney general and maybe even to every attorney in the country asking them to participate in this vast roundup of women and girls who, again, a, a poor woman is a prostitute. There's no differentiation in the eyes of the law at this point. So it really is just a vast rounding up of working class women who are not necessarily charged with anything. They are non-consensually tested and if they test positive, they are detained until such time as they are no longer testing positive for gonorrhea or syphilis. And what's really shocking and awful about this, I mean, it's all shocking and awful, but at this time, there were no good tests for those diseases. They were riddled with error and there were no good cures. Most of these women were injected with co toxic compounds of arsenic and mercury for months at a time in an effort to kill the bacteria before killing the person. But that line was thin. Uh, and this plan, it starts in World War I, but it continues in the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s. In fact, in World War II, millions of dollars are put into the federal budget to um, expand this detention. It continues in the 50s, it continues in the 60s, it continues up until the 1970s in some places. This vast plan to arrest incarcerate, and in some cases, particularly if they were Black women, sterilize poor women and girls because they were seen as a threat to America's war readiness. Gosh, it's just horrific. And this was happening at the House of D as well. Yes, many of these people ended up at the House of D. And in fact, I remember I said there were no good drugs to treat these diseases. The first good drugs are developed during World War II. They're called the sulfa class of drugs. There are a lot of the antibiotics that we think of as the first class of antibiotics. And they test them non-consensually on incarcerated women at the house of detention. Gosh, that's so terrible. So what was it like to be incarcerated there? It was hard. It was not a good place. It was a maximum security prison because <clears throat> in the original idea, it was only going to be a jail, which is a place where a person is held for a short time, either before their trial or while on trial. But it opens in the Depression. The city didn't want to have two different institutions, one for women on trial and one for sentenced women. So it creates a single institution, the House of D, that is maximum security. Everyone is treated like a maximum security prisoner, regardless of whether you are on trial, whether you are serving a sentence, or whether you're a 16-year-old whose parents said is disobedient. If you were a wayward and disobedient girl, your parents could have you incarcerated without a trial. They could, they could simply tell the up. Yeah. Yeah. Once you were on the inside, you were given uh, really invasive, traumatic internal examinations. Uh, some of these were for STIs, like we've talked about the American plan. Some were also for contraband or drugs. Women protested it and rioted against these uh, internal examinations. For every year, the prison was opened. In 1958, there was a huge riot in the prison. And they brought in a new warden and the warden actually looked at the results of these invasive and often scarring exams and discovered that they had never not once found contraband in doing them in over 20 years and the practice was not discontinued in fact it continues to this day women are still forced to put up with these invasive pap smears which numerous medical organizations have called tenement to torture uh, and yet they still continue 
anytime you enter or leave a detention center. So these exams were awful and they were what started your introduction to the prison. And they were done by the same doctors who were supposed to give you health care if you were in prison. So can you imagine then having to go to that doctor for any kind of assistance? Not that the health care was any good. The health care was terrible. Uh, the prison cells were tiny. For most of the time the prison was open, it was fundamentally overcrowded, built for 400, holding as many as 800 people. So two and three people would be put in a cell at a time. The cells were infested with mice, with vermin. Uh, with cockroaches, there were frequent fights, uh, people were beaten by the guards, and probably estimates change over time. But in the 1960s, both sociologists and incarcerated women estimate that about 75% of the people in the prison are queer. 75%. It's shocking. So the prison is this terrible, dehumanizing and cruel place. But it's also a place where queer women and trans men met one another and a center for queer community in New York. Remember, like we were talking about earlier, most homophobic time in America, you couldn't go anywhere else. But the prison couldn't be shut down because the government was the one bringing queer people there. So some of the folks I talked to would talk about standing outside in the shadow of the prison at the drugstore next door with other butches hanging out watching who was arrested and who left so you could meet people and you could find people you've been incarcerated with. It was a center for queer community and a must-see site for adventurous tourists. So the prison plays this weird duality of being, uh, Audre Lorde calls it both a reminder of punishment and a reminder of resistance, right? It's both the community and the people cracking down on the community in one. Wow. And speaking of resistance, of course, it was only a, a few yards away from the Stonewall Inn, wasn't it? And yeah. of course, the, the day that we're recording, June 28th, this is actually the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. How's that for good timing? It's so <laughs> now, were the inmates able to see the uprising from their windows? Yeah, Christopher Street actually ran directly into the prison. So incarcerated people in the House of D could see, hear, and smell what was happening at Stonewall. It was like 500 feet away. You just have to turn the camera the tiniest bit and you'll discover that on that night, the people inside held a riot all their own. They set fire to their belongings and tossed them out the windows while screaming, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. They participated in the Stonewall riot, even though they were already incarcerated. If we think about the people on the streets being in danger of being beaten by the police, imagine if you are already in a cage where no one else can see you but the guards. And the, the, the strength, the resilience, the bravery of these women, trans men, and non-binary folks who have largely been forgotten in the story of Stonewall, in part because we don't know any of their names, right? We don't know what people were in the prison that night, but we do know that there were two queer women who were leaders in the Black Panther Party, Afini Shakur, the mother of Tupac, and Joan Byrd, who were incarcerated in the House of D during Stonewall. They saw the Gay Liberation Front protesting Stonewall because the Gay Liberation Front was born after Stonewall in order to protest the Women's House of Detention in support of Black Panthers. That was their very first action and the reason they exist. And these women, Afini Shakur and Joan Byrd, when they left prison, uh, well, Afini Shakur met a girlfriend there who I actually got to talk to, Carol Crooks, who was wonderful. Uh, but they also pressed forward in connecting these movements, the gay liberation movement, the black liberation movement, the women's liberation movement. They brought these issues together and they organized together with the Gay Liberation Front and the Black Panthers post Stonewall because of their experiences in the prison. Right. My goodness. So 
I, I want to circle back to that a little bit later on. But um, before that, you talk a little bit about the purpose of incarceration and uh, how it changed throughout the 19th century, as, particularly with the abolition of slavery and increasing numbers of women leaving their family homes to, to work in cities. So, you know, their, their parents aren't uh, disciplining them, I suppose, in the way that they would have before. Can you tell us more about how incarceration changed throughout that century? I want to ask you a little bit more about how it was made to enforce the idea of so-called proper femininity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So post-Civil War, that's the moment we're going to go back to. It's a, a 1870. There has been, have been prisons in the U.S. for a long time. These prisons, though, are mainly focused on the violent antisocial acts of white men, assaults and robberies. That's what they're for. They're about containing antisocial behavior. Now, in the aftermath of the Civil War, two things start to happen in a major way. Black people of all races begin to gain more access to the public sphere around the country. And women of all races also begin to gain more access to the public sphere because during the Civil War, so many women had to take up public lives, either because their fathers, brothers, and husbands were away or died, or because they disguised themselves as men in order to be part of the war. For all of these reasons, women start to be really present in this public sphere in a way they hadn't been previously. In fact, the first census after the Civil War is the first time the government asks about women's employment because it's recognizing that women are now in the public sphere in a new and different way. Part of this means we have to grapple with how does incarceration work on women? Because again, Victorian time, women and men thought to be completely different. This system for violent white men that they had come up with needed to be repurposed for women and it needed to be done by women. So we have this big reform conference in 1870 to ask, what is women's incarceration? What is women's justice? And that's where they come up with this idea that we have to create whole separate institutions that focus on women because they need a different form of justice. And in particular, what they need to do is focus on those kind of soft crimes I talked about earlier, crimes against the public order, wearing pants, smoking, prostitution, drug use, intoxication, disorderly conduct, because those crimes are so low level. They're a moment when the system can grab on to these improperly feminine women whose only other choice in life is to be sex workers, bring them into institutions where they will forcibly feminize them and make them proper so that they can be wives, mothers, and maids, right? So we create this whole separate system under this idea of helping women. This is one of the big takeaways for me is that often prison reform gets talked about and what we get are these carceral systems that make it easier to arrest people, easier to incarcerate them for longer, make bigger prisons. It's always a better prison, right, or a better justice system, but the truth is it just brings more and more people in, and once they're in, the system is terrible to them. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, one of the, the sort of main functions of it is to make women into socially acceptable wives and mothers, right? So we're seeing now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade uh, and calls for criminalizing abortion and even things like miscarriage that this is still going on, right? Can you comment on the history of forced birth in the United States? Absolutely. I mean, it goes hand in hand with this kind of incarceration, right? Because the idea is wives, mothers, maids who are raisers of children. This is all about this idealized perfect white straight child. That's what in the end we are always protecting. Women are a danger to men 
and they're a danger to the community because they might birth the wrong kind of babies. But we want to have the right kind of babies, right? So it's always this push and play of trying to say, you, you know, poor women, black women, masculine women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you should not have children. We're going to sterilize you. And you, good white women, should have no access to reproductive control so that we can force you to have children. They go hand in hand. And it might have, you know, uh, the, the language might have changed and it might have become a sort of more invisible thread in our justice system. But when you look at the origins of it and you see how little things have changed, you can see why this isn't, you know, uh, as anti-choice people will always talk about like, oh, they're so interested in life. But it's not about life because it's not about supporting children or mothers. It's about birth and controlling birth and people who give birth. Yes, absolutely right. And punishing them too, you know? So they, they still, a lot of these people, they um, are also opposed to abortions in the case where the mother would not survive. And in that case, a lot of them, they don't want the mother to survive. You know, it's about punishing you for having sex. And she's the wrong kind of woman, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, that that's what incarceration does, right? It, it puts away the wrong kind of people so they won't hurt the right people and they won't breed more of the wrong people. Right. Of course, you know, if, if one in every four pregnancies ends in miscarriage, I mean, like we're, we're all the wrong kind of person, aren't we? You know, I mean, that, that could happen to anybody anyway. So going back to your, to your previous point, um, you, you made the connection between a women's liberation, black liberation and gay liberation, right? So it is clear and increasingly clear that we are all in this together. How did these groups support each other outside the house of D and how can we bring these lessons to the present day? How, how do we move forward? I mean, I think one of the most important things that they did is that they talked to each other. To each other makes it sound like they are separate groups. These are a lot of the same people, not all in each camp, you know, whether that's by identity or by how they actually organize, but they are circling around each other. They are listening to each other, working together. Uh, Examples of this, like I said, the Gay Liberation Front is founded to support the Black Panthers currently in the Women's House of Detention. There's this big meeting post-Stonewall. Older gay activists want to channel it towards gay activism. The younger folks who were at Stonewall on the first night, Martha Shelley, Jim Farrat, people like that, they say, what we want to do is protest the House of D. And the older activists say, no, because they don't want to piss off the police. And the younger activists stormed out of the meeting and announced that they were forming a new organization called the Gay Liberation Front, which then went on to protest the prison over and over again. Now, on the other side of this, Afini Shakur is in the prison, right? She's there during Stonewall. She's there after Stonewall. She starts to see those banners protesting, the Gay Liberation Front out there. She starts to date this woman, Carol. She starts thinking about the connections between Black liberation, gay liberation, feminist liberation. She goes, when when the Black Panther Party holds this Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention, the idea is that they are going to write a new American constitution, and they bring all of these activist groups to come together and write their portion of it, what it is they see as needing from a new constitution. Afini Shakur actually goes to the gay men's workshop to help them formulate their thinking and their demands. When a number of gay men write up the event later, they talk about how helpful she was, and she says to them, I didn't help you. You helped me to think about these issues more clearly, right? Mm-hmm. She is connecting this stuff from the Black Panther side. The gay liberationists are connecting it from the gay liberation side. The radical lesbians are there. Leslie Feinberg is part of this story from the trans and socialist. Uh, and it's just all of these activists coming together because they recognize that the system, the prison system, the carceral system is a shared enemy. And that is something that I think we have forgotten to a degree 
in the queer organized mainstream movement, right? We're focused a lot more on these very um, specific expressions of inequality, like being kept out of marriage law, which of course is a travesty, right? But that's a very small and specific focus. Whereas the incarcerate, the fact that 40% of people incarcerated in women's prisons are queer, which should be a major issue. You have to detangle a lot more to understand that. There's no one law you can point to and say, oh, they're arresting them on the like, don't be a lesbian law. We have to overturn that. Instead, this requires us to look at the real circumstances of people's lives, to talk to them and say, what is affecting you? How have you ended up where you are? What would be better for you? What do you want? What systems have failed you? And then organize from that position. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the prison system is, is deeply fundamentally flawed. Um, so how well, does- I actually would push back on that because yeah. I thought that too for a long time. I thought the prison system was flawed or broken and it's not. It is in fact monstrously efficient. It is doing exactly what it was designed to do. We just don't understand it, right? Or some of us don't understand it. I, I gained a lot of this knowledge from listening to abolitionists in the modern movement, uh, folks from Angela Davis, who was actually incarcerated in the House of D, uh, to- the activist Tourmaline or Mariam Kaba, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Andrea Ritchie, what they point out is that the prison system isn't about crime or justice or rehabilitation. It's the place where we put the people who all of other systems of care have failed. Our broken system of housing, our broken system of mental health care, of physical health care, of SDI care, our broken systems of welfare, and jobs, our broken minimum wage, all of these systems fail people, leaving them destitute, hurt, and in need of care. And instead of caring for them, we put them into prisons. And so long as that is true, we will allow all those other systems of care to be deeply dysfunctional because they don't have to work. Prisons are there to hoover up everyone we want to ignore. They're not flawed, they're not broken, they are incredibly efficient. They just they don't have anything to do with way. justice. <laughs> right. Now, I'm, I'm so glad that you explained that. So my question for you is, what is the alternative? How do we care for these people in, in a way that would be meaningful? I mean, that's a question to talk to them, I think, largely about. I am a historian, and I talk about the past, and I can lead us to this moment of mass incarceration, and I can point to folks in the abolition movement who helped me to understand what I was seeing. But I think the truth is we need to be asking these questions of folks who are formerly incarcerated. So many times, I think we reduce the people who've been incarcerated down to fungible numbers, their statistics or raw data for someone else to explain to us and come up with the answers. But they know these systems. They know who has failed them, who has jailed them, who has ignored them and punished them. And they know who supported them and what kind of supports they need. And so when I was finishing up this book, one of the first things that I did was to talk to folks in the modern abolition movement and say, look, I care so much about these issues. What is being done now? How is it being done? Does my book tell the full story as you know it? Or am I missing out on things? That I think is part of our work as folks who have not been incarcerated uh, is to talk to people who have been incarcerated and to listen to them, to see them as experts with hard won knowledge and experience that we can all learn from. Absolutely. So how did the House of Detention finally close? 
Well, it, it closed uh, largely because of those invasive pap smears uh, and genital searches that we were talking about. There had been protests about those, like I said, since the moment the prison was open, over and over and over again. But with every protest, they were kind of ignored uh, because they were sex workers, or they were poor, or they were liars, or they had a really long arrest record, or they were on drugs, or all of these different reasons. But in 1965, an 18-year-old anti-Vietnam War peace protester was arrested on UN Plaza, and she was incarcerated at the House of D for three days. During that time, she was given a truly brutal internal examination by a male doctor who asked her questions about her virginity and all of these really deeply disgusting questions. Uh, she tried to get in touch with people. She had two other women who were arrested. She couldn't. Uh, she was kept in the prison for days. She couldn't even find a lawyer. Finally, when she was released, uh, she went to her family. They were embarrassed by her. She was in incredible pain. She was bleeding. She didn't know what to do. And at that protest where she had been arrested, there was another woman there, an older woman, who, when it looked like no cops were coming that day of the arrest, had offered to take everybody's like extra belongings, which they would normally bring with them into prison. So you could have a sweater if you needed one. It was cold, blah, blah, blah. She was like, I'll take your things. And when you're done protesting, you know, come find me or I'll see you next week. So this young girl, this 18-year-old girl, remembering that, goes to see that woman. And when she told her what had happened, this woman turned it into a cause celeb. Because that woman was the author and activist Grace Paley, who was already famous. And that young girl was Andrea Dworkin, the feminist icon who was not yet known as a feminist or a writer or really much of anything. And together they went on a like barnstorming media tour to bring attention to what Andrea Dworkin would later call the sadomasochistic structure of the prison. Uh, and that's largely what brought it down because they had this combined sort of social capital. Andrea Dworkin is a young white woman, upwardly mobile in college, doing good anti-war activism who's never been arrested before, no history of drugs or sex work. Grace Paley is this famous author with this big network that wants to listen to her. And together, they're able to do what all of these other poor, Black, formerly incarcerated queer women could not do, which is get this story told. Within like a month of her arrest, there are five different government commissions opened up to look into the House of Detention. And from that moment on, it is inevitable that the prison will be leaving Greenwich Village. And it ends up on Rikers Island, which had been a plan for many years, but they kept putting it off because they didn't want to spend any money on incarcerated people. A really interesting sort of coda to that story, in her later memoir, Heartbreak, Andrea Dworkin wrote the only reason she ended up writing about um, uh, uh, pornography is that she wanted to write about prisons as a system that demeaned and devalued women. And she put together a book that no one would publish. And when she decided to, she wanted to write about those issues over the institutional demeaning and devaluing of women over controlling their bodies, she thought, well, if they won't do it about prisons, I'll write about pornography and I can make all the same points. So in a weird way, Andrea Dworkin's career was sort of created by this incarceration and then by our refusal to listen to formerly incarcerated people about what had actually happened to them. Wow. Now, you mentioned also that there are still activists like Jay Toole today who are working to preserve the memory of the House of D as an important queer landmark. Now, so much trauma happened there. And as you mentioned, of course, they made a lot of important friendships, too. So what does it mean to them now? Why is it important to preserve this memory? Well, what Jay said to me when I went on her first tour of the village where she told me about her time in the House of D was that it mattered because they were in danger of being forgotten. 
that she felt that young people had no idea what they endured and could not make sense of the queer movement without making sense of these incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and trans people, could not make sense of Greenwich Village without understanding how this prison was foundational to making it the queer neighborhood it was. And if you can't make sense of that, then you can't understand America's idea of queerness because so much of it relates directly back to Greenwich Village by ripping the prison out they had sort of created a hole in the heart of the village. That's what one uh, fifth generation uh, Greenwich Village resident and lesbian activist told me. Uh, she was uh, a senior citizen now, but she was very involved in both the movement to uh, free the Panthers and also trying to protect the prison because they wanted to keep it. They wanted to use it for community organizations and as a landmark to make this history visible, right? And that unfortunately was largely destroyed in an effort to not only hide the prison and what had been done, but to remove this history from Greenwich Village. Right, but now you've uh, you've written the book, you've given some voices back, you've told some of those stories, and uh, everybody can read them for themselves. So your book is out now, and it is an absolutely fascinating read. I mean, I cannot recommend it enough. So what is next for you? What else is going on? Where can we find you? Oh my gosh, I'm easily found on the internet, and I always say, if you're hearing this and you have questions, come and ask me anytime. I'm always happy to answer good faith questions about this history. Also, one of the most beautiful things that I have to say as being a queer historian is every time I write a book, people reach out to me with records that I didn't know about, stories of their ancestors who were involved in these places. And I love to hear all of that. So I am still actively collecting all of that information. The House of D will always be part of my work and abolition will forever be a lens on my work. In terms of uh, my writing projects, I'm not sure yet, but I think the next thing I work on is going to be about the history of the Lower East Side and the queer avant-garde radicals that emerged there post-Stonewall. That sounds absolutely incredible and we will really look forward to it. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we cannot thank you enough and uh, we hope to have you back when your next project is ready. Thank you so much, Jessica. And thank you to all the dirty, sexy history listeners. Uh, people like you are the reason I write this book. So thank you. That's so kind. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Hugh Ryan for joining us today. His new book, The Women's House of Detention, is out now. You can find him at hughryan.org or on Twitter at Hugh Ryan. He also has a Patreon, so if you like queer history as much as we do, be sure to check him out at patreon.com slash Ryan. Which leads me to thank our awesome patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Lily Sire Lewis, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, Sylvia Van Eyck, and Denny White. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. This week, we'll also be posting our video interview for our patrons and some extra content as well, so check it out. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe, or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, where we will also, of course, post photos from this week's episode. If you'd like to contact us or read more posts from our archives, check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time.
Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.